Beloved, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12. We'll be taking uh, a micro uh, journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. and we will be using this as the key text, but we will be going uh, in different places uh, in the same book. So let's, uh, chapter 12, verse 8, uh, to the end of the, the chapter, and it reads, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was uh, written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goats, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether good or evil. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, I'm sure you've asked yourself this question. What is life about? What is the meaning of life? Well, usually this question is fleshed out in four sub-questions that we need to understand in order for us to understand what is life about, what is the meaning of life. The first question is, where do we come from? The second question is, why are we here? What are we living for? What is the purpose of life? The third one is, who are we? Uh, What type of creatures are we? And then the fourth one is, where are we going? What is our destiny? Now, the question that comes into mind with these questions is that, is there a way in which these questions could be answered? Well, a nihilist called Friedrich Nietzsche would say, no chance, there is no way of answering these questions because life is meaningless by definition. He believed that there is no objective order or structure in the world except that which we give it. So if you want to know what meaning is, you have to give it meaning because there is no external sense of meaning that exists outside yourself. You want to find meaning? Look deeply within yourself. Then you will find meaning. He is the same guy who made this famous statement that says, God is dead. Well, what he meant by that is that at the time, because of the enlightenment, the idea that the universe was governed by physical laws and not God was becoming mainstream. He said science had killed God and that's why he is dead. He no longer has an effect on people's lives because now science actually gives us the explanations that we need. Now it shouldn't be surprising that a person who thinks like that should think there is no meaning in life. But I think the book of Ecclesiastes answers these questions. Nietzsche can say, we can't answer these questions, but the book of Ecclesiastes can answer these questions. These questions are answered through the experience of the preacher. Koheleth is his name. I just prefer to say Solomon. Well, people uh, look for authority from different types of people. Normally, we lend our ear to a successful person because we think that they know how to make life work. Therefore, we should look to them. They'll help us to, to know how to make this life work. Uh, people look to celebrities. Why? Because celebrities are successful. They are popular. They are known by others. We want to get to where they are. There's probably no better authority than Solomon when it comes 
to what is life about? What is the meaning of life? Who can better tell us where do we come from? Why are we here? Uh, who are we? Where are we going? People are, li- are willing to listen to all types of philosophers, Nietzsche being included among those. But let's listen to Solomon. Why? Because in Solomon we have the most powerful man, the wisest man on earth at his time, and at the same time, the richest man on earth. You see, Solomon was a combination of power, wealth, wisdom, which is very rare. This was a man who had the ability to test things in ways that some people could not because they don't have the resources to do it. This is the person who was able to find out which is the best way of figuring things out because he was the wisest man. This is the person who is able to make things happen because he was the most powerful person. He had no limitations. He could not hold back anything. He was king. He was the powerful person. He was also, uh, this rich guy was also wise. He had no if only. Uh, Some of us who say, I want to test this theory that says that, you know, money doesn't make people happy. I just want to have it just to test that theory. Well, we have a guy who actually possessed the wealth, was powerful and also wise. Uh, In answering these questions of meaning, Solomon looks at life on earth, and he uses the expression, under the sun, under heaven. And about 30 times in the book, he uses these expressions to speak about life in this world without taking God into account. He he speaks about life in this earth when we all think that God is dead. And he concludes that life on earth without God is is meaningless. Of course, in this particular point, he agrees with Nietzsche (laughs) because definitely life without God is meaningless. He's imagining this world that we have like a box and the box that contains the toys and saying that all the toys in the box can only be explained but with what is already in the box. If you need the explanation of how the toys got into the box, ask the toys within the box how the toys got into the box. You see, he's not looking beyond what is under the sun. Everything that is under the sun can be explained with what is already under the sun, excluding the divine providence. He uses also other expressions as well. Vanity of vanities is using grasping after the wind. Essentially, Solomon was running a scientific experiment. And as he runs this scientific experiment, he starts with a naturalistic assumption. And his big assumption is, there is no God. Then what will I find if I assume that there is no God? And his conclusion is that if I do any pursuit, Without factoring God into my life, what I will find is vanity of vanities. What I will find is that everything that I pursue is the grasping after the wind. Everything that he sees, he says, without God under the sun is like this. It's meaningless without God. You see, the word vanity is the word breath. See, if you breathe into your hand right now, you feel the warm air. But then afterwards, it disappears. Like vapor, it disappears. It's here now, then it's gone. It's here for a second, then it's gone. Breath of breath. Vapor of vapor. A smoke you see now, and it disappears. And he uses another expression, grasping after the wind. Have you tried to grasp the wind? And have you tried to catch it? Have you tried to contain it? You can't. It's a pointless exercise to try to grasp the wind. And he's basically saying, life without God is here today, and then it's gone, it's temporary. But it is also pointless, it's meaningless. You see, his whole conclusion would say, friends and families, without God being factored into them, They're here today and gone tomorrow. 
and they are meaningless. Being rich and wealthy without God being factored is grasping after the wind, is vanity of vanity. A pleasure and entertainment without God is temporary and meaningless. Work without God is temporary and meaningless. Wisdom and education, the things that we devote our lives to so much, without God in the picture, temporary and meaningless. A beauty and strength, of course we know beauty is here today and then it disappears. It is true. Strength without God, here today, gone tomorrow. If you try to find meaning in yourself like Nietzsche says, Nietzsche says, no, don't try to look for meaning outside. Look within yourself. You will find it. If you do that, you will find yourself in an unsolvable maze and you will trip yourself up. If you try to find meaning in your talents, then you will be grasping after the wind. If you try to find meaning in others, they will disappoint you. You see, if you try to find meaning in the things of life, these things that are temporary, you're wasting your time because you're looking in the wrong place for meaning. Trying to find meaning in relationships, riches, education, is chasing after a wrong God. And that would be idolatry. The only way to try and find meaning, to know meaning, is to know God. All the questions about meaning in life, they find their answers in God. God is the only solution to the puzzle of life. You cannot solve this puzzle of life if your assumption is not God. If you don't start with God, you can't solve it. Therefore, Solomon, broadly speaking, in this book of Ecclesiastes, will give us the attributes of God that will help us find this meaning in life. Answer these questions of life. And the first attribute that I'm going to start with is God is a powerful creator. God is a powerful creator. You're on chapter 12. You haven't moved yet, I hope. In chapter 12, let's see here, explicitly referring to the creator. Look at verse 1. Remember now your creator. Um, uh, look at verse 6. Remember your creator. And then if you go to chapter 3, go to chapter 3, and then we go to verse 11. Verse 11, he tells us about this creator, what he has done. He says he has made everything beautiful in his time. Look at chapter 11. Go to chapter 11 with me. Chapter 11, verse 5. So we'll be jumping around Ecclesiastes. We won't be jumping to the other books. We'll be in Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 5 uh, there. In verse 5 he says, As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In Genesis 1, we know that God created the heavens and the earth. The sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the sea creatures, the land creatures. We know from other scriptures that he created angels, hosts of heaven, the mountains, the hills, the wind, the fire, the hail, the snow, colds, and the winter. We also know that he created everything by the words he spoke. Despite the, what the charismatic tells you, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can make things come into existence. Just speak them into existence. We can't. We can't. There's only one being who can do that. And that is God. Creation by words demonstrates power. It doesn't matter how many times the charismatic say, you will see power in this house, power, power, power. Can you just create by your words something that didn't exist? Can you just make it come into existence? No. There's only one being who can do that. God created out of nothing. All that we see. Then you say to me, but wait a minute, this sanctuary was not created by God. Yeah, I grant you that, but could it have been created 
without all the raw materials that God spoke into existence? No. No. Humans are not powerful, are not that powerful. They cannot create out of nothing. They can only create out of what already exists. That's why Tolkien said we are sub-creators. We are not the primary creators. We create out of what is already there. When God created the world, he endowed it with raw materials that, raw materials that we need to build. Go to uh, chapter 7. Go to chapter 7. Out of everything that he created, there's a crown jewel. Crown jewel of God's creation. Verse 29, the very last verse. It says, truly this I have found, that God made man, made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God created man, he created me and you. Yes, we were in our mother's wombs, but we were created by God. Man is God's special creation, like no other creature is. You are special in a way that a pig is not. You are not just an advanced animal. You are not just like this high-performing machine. No, you were created in the image of God. And no animal can claim that. No machine can claim that. Yes, Solomon makes this comparison between man and animal elsewhere, where he says, you know, death comes to you as far as it also comes to the animal. We all die. They all die. But he didn't make an animal upright. He didn't make an animal uh, according to his image. Man's greatest joy and satisfaction is found by the fact that is found in the fact that supernatural power that is from above chooses to have fellowship to, with, with you. God, the supernatural one, chooses to have fellowship with you. Since we've been created by God, since we are created in his image, there are implications. What does it mean? We are dependent on him like an infant is dependent on his mother. There's absolutely nothing an infant can do on its own. It can't feed itself. It can't change itself. The only thing it can do independently is cry. But other than that, everything else has to be done for it. Being created by God means that he owns us. Your life doesn't belong to you. Your life is borrowed. It's borrowed. And you should pay interest on that. Your life is a loan. One day it needs to go back to the creator. You probably have heard people say, no one can tell me what to do with my life. I can do whatever I want. Right? Well, let's look at verse 11 in chapter 3. They say they can do whatever they want to do. But the question is, could they bring themselves into existence? No, they can't. They can't bring themselves into existence. Look at one thing about us being created by God that we... Uh, that God has put in us. Look at verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in his time. And then look at the second line. And also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning. So when God created man, he put eternity in their hearts. What does this mean? He put that which lasts forever in their heart. He put that which is everlasting in their heart. So... If they have that which is everlasting, it means life cannot be explained by everything that is limited by the sun, by what is under the sun. It, is, it means if you are a toy inside the box and that which allows you to transcend the box has been put in you, it means you can't explain everything by what is within the box. You are not only a body, you are a spirit, a spiritual being. We all can see your body, but we can't see the spirit. Your body is limited by time, but your spirit is not. 
a powerful creator has created you as a physical being and a spiritual being. So this is the first attribute. We have the powerful creator. God is a powerful creator. The second attribute is God is a supreme ruler. God is a supreme ruler. And we see this primarily in chapter 3, the, verses, the first eight verses. And the first eight verses tells us that God is in charge of the world. He's the supreme governor of the earth. God's work doesn't stop with creation. He doesn't create and just leave the world to function uh, with his own, own mechanisms. No, he governs it. He governs it. He continues to govern it. The Bible tells us he continues to do this by his word. Created by words, continues to sustain it by word. It is wrong to think that Satan is in charge of the world. Yes, the Bible tells us he's the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. It just means he's the ruler of a system that is against God. But ultimately, God is the ruler. God is the supreme ruler over all humans. Nothing happens on earth that can surprise him. Go to chapter 9, verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 3, he says this. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Uh, madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to die. Despite the wickedness that we see in the world, despite the wickedness of humans, sin doesn't stop God from governing the world the way he wants to. He's also in charge of our times. He's in charge of our times. Verse 1 to 8 of chapter 3 talks about the different times that humans go through. And God is in control of that. Nothing can be done outside his will. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And I'm afraid that I have to be the one to tell you that it's not always a wonderful plan. That it's sometimes wonderful and sometimes not wonderful. Why? Because if you look at chapter 3 verse 4, he clearly speaks about the time of weeping. That's not a wonderful time. And a time of laughing. And he speaks about the time of mourning and the time of dancing. In verse 6 it speaks about gaining and it also speaks about losing. God determined when you would be born. And he would also determine when you would die. If you have thought that you are in charge of your life, then did you bring yourself into existence? Will you determine when you're going to die? Do you know? You don't know. Our former president, Nelson Mandela, had this poem that he loved, the Invictus poem by William Ernest Henley. And this is what it says. I am the master of my faith, fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the biggest lie from the pit of hell. No human being can be a master of their destiny. Even people who take their lives, they would have never imagined it at some point that they will take their lives. They could have never predicted that's what's going to happen with them because it happens so quickly. No one is the master of their destiny. Our destiny is controlled by the supreme ruler. He's in charge of our circumstances. If you go to chapter 7, verse 14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. So man can find out that one come after him. Nothing, come, not, nothing that will come after him. So God is appointed. He is in charge. You are not in control of your life. He is in control, but he cares. He's a God who cares. He's very generous with us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, which brings us to the third attribute. God is a powerful creator. God is a supreme ruler. But God is a bountiful, uh, is a bountiful giver. God is a bountiful giver. The third attribute of God, all of 
God's creatures receive gifts from Him. God is not only generous to those who love Him, but He's also generous to those who don't. The Bible tells us that the rain falls on both the righteous and the wicked. All of life is given. All your existence is given. We live in the light of the givenness of things. That's why we exist. If God wasn't generous and out of the outflow of his Trinitarian love and bestowed us with his lavish gifts of life, we would never experience his goodness. What is the first thing that he gives to us? Life. Life, the gift of life. You see it in chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7, he says there, Surely, uh, chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. None of us is entitled to life. God doesn't owe us life. He has just created us out of the outflow of his love, showing and demonstrating his goodness. The second gift is that of uh, talents, knowledge. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who, has, who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. Why do people excel in certain things and others not? Why do people uh, have certain inclinations and others don't? Uh, we like to claim intelligence. We like to claim being geniuses, being the first ones to figure this and figure that out. But without God giving you that ability, you can't do it. You can't do it. The fact that you excel in certain things is due to what God has already given to you. At least we know that the brain you, that you have, you didn't create. God did. So, you using that brain in, in different ways to discover things should actually cause you to have gratitude because you didn't give yourself the brain. Another gift is the gift of riches. Chapter 5, verse 19 Chapter 5, verse 19, he says this. He says, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and receive uh, in his labor, this is the gift of God. Riches and wealth are a gift. They don't come by chance. People, maybe they might say, there are timeless principles that exist in the universe that I can actually use to make sure that I am rich. He has created the world with certain laws. You are right. And those laws, just like the laws of physics, they work. There are certain laws that God has created, has given to us so that we can function with. But the thing is, how come the very same principles can be applied by others but they don't get the same results as you are getting? Not all hardworking people are rich. Not all people who are intelligent are rich. There are people who are working far harder than you but have far less resources than you do. There are people who have far more intelligence than you but actually have not been able to have the same achievements as you. What do you give that to? It's a gift from God. He also gives the gift of work. You are there in chapter 5. Look at the preceding uh, verse, uh, verse 18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. Work is not a curse. The curse results from the fall which makes work frustrating. But work is not a curse. It's a gift from God. Man was created to work before the curse. God works, so man imitates God in that. 
Work allows us to experience the pleasure of God that he had when he declared everything good. Because when we work and we achieve things, we are able to achieve them and and say, this is good. We too can create like God and sit back and take pleasure in our work. And that is a gift. But the other gift is the gift of relationships. You see this in chapter 4. We can see in verse 8, it's pointless to labor for riches if there is no one to share these riches with. There is no one to see what you're doing. It's pointless. It's pointless. We work primarily for our families. The rewards we reap are worth it if we can enjoy them with our families. I know today people are so narcissistic uh, that they literally say things like, Happy birthday to me! Today I'm taking myself out. (laughs) Maybe there's something wrong with me, but I've never understood that idea. (laughs) I've never understood it. Because the pleasure of your birthday actually comes with the fact that someone wishes you their happy birthday. And going out, actually the pleasure is going out with someone. That's how narcissistic we have become. But this as well is a gift from God. Having people to share the experiences of life with you, it's a gift from God. It is true, two are better than one. Chapter 4, verse 9 to 12. Because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and the threefold cord is not quickly broken. So people are a gift. Much better is having people to work with, to build with, to create with. No one can be successful on, its, on, on their own. First, you need people to help, to, get, to help you to get the skills to be successful, And also you need them to be interested in your skills so that you can exchange them for a reward or compensation. No woman and no man can be an island. There are people who live like they don't need anyone, but the truth is they are miserable because they don't have true friends or meaningful relationships. You know the saying that says it's lonely at the top? That is true. A journey to the top leaves behind it a trail of broken relationships and friends that have become enemies. You remember Charles Dickens' short story, A Christmas Carol. Scrooge, who had all the money, but who who, who treated people badly and had become lonely. If you live like Scrooge, you will find that there is no meaning in life. But if you embrace the giver, and embrace the gift that you have been given, then you will appreciate and take pleasure and get joy in the relationships. All gifts are pointless. All of them are pointless without the gift of joy. You remember remember the example that has been made before the story that God gives you uh, the, the toy, but he also gives you the batteries to make the toys work. What are these batteries that make the toys work? It's the gift of joy that he gives. The gift of joy. Chapter 2, verse 24, he talks about this joy. In fact, it's amazing to me, if you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, how filled with joy the book is. And all this enjoyment is the enjoyment of the gifts that the great, generous, bountiful giver has given to us. These enjoyments come from him. You can have everything that you want in life, but if you lack this particular gift of joy, then your life is pointless, meaningless. And this ability to enjoy life comes from God. This ability to enjoy our talents comes from God. Human relationships are not worth it if there is no ability to enjoy them. Cool toys are useless without batteries. A mansion without a furniture is empty. A beautiful car without the engine is useless. You can enjoy these as a gift from God. 
But probably, and you probably have guessed this, the greatest gift of them all is the gift of salvation. The guilt of the gift of salvation. Life only makes sense if we put God in the right place. And we can only put God in the right place if we received the greatest gift, the indescribable gift. Because if we receive that indescribable gift, this is the gift that helps us to appreciate all the other gifts. You see, without Christ, without receiving Jesus, then your life will always be meaningless. It can never have any value. It can never have any substance because you're not able to appreciate things the way God has created you to appreciate them. As our creator, he created us. He knows what gives us joy. He created us as specific type of beings who will be able to enjoy certain things. And he says the agenda for what type of things we enjoy. And he puts the abilities in us to enjoy those very things. And if we exclude him from the equation doesn't matter what we do and doesn't matter what we say we enjoy. It's not true joy. It's not lasting joy. Because joy can only come from Him. The gift of salvation helps us to look to the giver and not the gift. Now the fourth attribute is not only the powerful creator, supreme ruler, a bountiful giver, but is also a righteous judge. He's also a righteous judge. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, 17, he says, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. If there is no God, then there is no judge. And if there is no judge, then we can live whichever way we want. Because there is no final judgment. And if there is no final judgment, then Nietzsche is right. There is no meaning in life. There is no reason for existence. Because there are no consequences. But God's judgment applies to both the righteous and the wicked. And he applies in two ways. As far as the righteous are concerned, the distribution of rewards. As far as the wicked are concerned, the unbelievers, the distribution of punishments. Look at chapter 8. Go to chapter 8 with me. I'll read this one. Chapter 8, go to verse 11 and, 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 and verse 12. So it's because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of man is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. You see, the very reason people continue to live the way they want, the very reason that people think that they can determine meaning by themselves, they give meaning to life themselves, is because they think they don't have to account to anyone at any point. But the reality of life is it doesn't matter how long that life exists. It still is for a limited time. And one day they'll have to account. You see, God is like a sleeping lion that is resting. And then... One thing creates the noise, like the springbok or whatever creates the noise to wake that lion up. And we all know what the fate of that springbok will be. Spring upon them. Might look like God is not paying attention to the evil in the world, but we know definitely if God judged in the past, he will judge in the future. We know this without doubt. But why is God at this point in time not showing himself that way? Well, they are continually entangling themselves in judgment. But because God is patient with the wicked, they continue, but he's giving them time to repent. God is giving them time to repent. He will judge in his time. You can be sure that no one will escape judgment. Yes, now you look at what's going on, you look at the evil, and you think, it's not going to happen, but it will. Although evil seems to be strong, but God is the ruler yet. 
And here we are clearly told, but those who fear God are not subjects of his anger. The judgment they will experience is that of rewards. How will they be rewarded? That's their concern. But they're not concerned about experiencing God's wrath. Because clearly there in verse 12 he says, it will be well with those who fear God. Who are these people? These are the people who have God as their one audience. When they are faced with the choice of pleasing God and pleasing uh, themselves, they choose pleasing God. Uh, Look at chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart uh, cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Solomon says, if you are young, enjoy life, but be aware that God one day will judge and live in the light of that. Don't just enjoy any pleasure, whichever way you want to. Take into account that God has given you legitimate pleasures. In fact, uh, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you learn about this joy. God didn't give us life so that we could go through it with downcast faces. No. Because of his goodness, we're supposed to show this joy. Joy that comes with the limits. God has, limit, has, has given us limits. They are lawful enjoyments. But people think that enjoying God and following God are two opposites. But they are not. These are the two ideas that come together in the Shorter Catechism. What is the end of man? Man's chief end is to do what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper said, God is glorified in us when what is happening? When we are most satisfied in Him. So when we find our enjoyment in Him and when we realize that He's this inexhaustible spring of joy, then when we are satisfied with Him, we are able to glorify Him in that way. Recognize God's gift and enjoy them without abusing them. Knowing that one day you will give an account of how you lived your life. In chapter 12, verse 13, look at what he says in chapter 12, verse 13. The last verse, he says, verse 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Whether good or evil, one day we will bring to account every evil thing. We will account for it, every secret thing. Whether we do it in the open or in secret, we will account for it. You see, Nietzsche said science killed God, but we have killed God ourselves as Christians in many ways. You see, we have essentially become theoretical Christians but practical atheists. Where essentially how we lead our lives are not different from how unbelievers lead their lives. Where what we do in our pursuits and what we find joy in is the very same things that people who don't believe find joy in. You see, we have killed joy. We have killed God, in fact. And we kill Him when we allow ourselves to be taken by worldliness. When we allow our hearts to be uh, taken up by worldliness. And worldliness is essentially where sin now is actually something that is uh, basically normal and righteousness is something strange. When we don't want to be called holier than thou because, no, 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 we are too holy, we don't like sin, then we have allowed secular mindset to infiltrate our lives and by definition we've kind of killed God practically in our lives. Although theoretically we might say, I believe in God. But are we practical atheists in our lives? Going back to the answers of these questions, how do we answer them? Where do we come from? We have been created by a powerful creator in his image, who is the supreme ruler of his creation, and chooses to bless his creation with many gifts for uh, with many gifts for their enjoyment. Why are we here? That's the question. If God is a powerful creator, 
If he owns us, then it means we have to give him glory. If God is a supreme ruler, then it means we have to obey. If God is a bountiful giver, then it means we need to live in gratitude and give thanks. If God is a righteous judge, then it means we need to fear him and live with God consciousness, being aware that he's our one audience. That's why we are here. Our life have meaning. But who are we? If God is a powerful creator, then what are we? We are creatures. What does that mean? We are limited. We are finite beings. We are dependent. We cannot cut ourselves from the source. You see, if you live with naturalistic assumptions, you think you can cut yourself from the supply that comes from God and as a result exist with your own power. But you can't because you are a creature. You are dependent. And if God is a supreme ruler, what does that make us? It makes us subjects. We don't set the agenda. He sets the agenda. And if he's a bountiful giver, then it means we are beneficiaries. Whatever we have ultimately comes from him, be it power, prosperity, talent, education, whatever mind we have, it comes from him. And if he is a righteous judge, what does that make us? It, make us, it makes us lawbreakers. Because of the fall, we are inclined to sin. And this is our weakness. By ourselves, we can't please him. Our lives are dependent on God's grace. We can only please him because of his grace. Now the very last question is where are we going? Where are we going? We all have the same destiny, as Ecclesiastes reminds us. One thing happens to all. Death is awaiting all of us. Every day we are getting closer to our appointed day of death. I know thinking about death is not a comfortable thing. But yet Ecclesiastes is there to help us live in that light. That all of this, all that we have is temporary, is passing away. And without God is meaningless. We, our bodies, will rot one day. Our bodies will go away and will rot in the grave. We are dying. And as a result, there's a way that we live. And we live in fear of God. And fearing God means that we don't ignore him as a creator. We don't forget, like the Israelites, forgot so many blessings that God gave them. We don't rebel against him because we know he's a supreme ruler and he will win at the end. Uh, we don't break the laws that he has given us because we know that ultimately he will bring us in his court and he will uh, judge us. God is not in the margin of their lives, those who fear God. God is not just a footnote he is at the center of their lives. God is not only a Sunday event, but God is a seven-day event in their life. Uh, they don't live like they are just bodies. Uh, they know that they are more than bodies. They are spiritual beings. And as a result, they are going to live forever. Even though death is our destiny, yet it is not the end of all things. Yes, it is true uh, Death will end this life, but it will not end our spiritual life. And that means that every single thing that we do in our lives right now has eternal consequences. You see, what you do under the sun, although there's a certain sense in which this, under the sun everything in the world is limited to it, but goes beyond the sun, extends to beyond the sun. How your life is lived now in the light of eternity will determine how you will be rewarded in eternity. Just like Nietzsche, if you remove God and live like he is dead, you will find that life is meaningless. Factor God in your life and you will find that life makes sense. Life makes sense and the sense that God had meant for it to mean. Let us go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, when we come to you and we learn about who you are in this way, we know that it can change our life because this is worldview. 
This is how we view the world. When we know that you are a powerful creator, we know things didn't happen by chance. No big bang created the beauty that we see, but rather a beautiful God who is all-powerful and all-great and good has created the earth that we see. When we seem to be seeing things happening that we can't understand, we have this comfort that our God is a supreme ruler uh, who doesn't pace up and down in heaven having lost control of his world, but he controls it. It's still within his control. His patience is what is manifesting for the sake of people turning to him. And Lord, when we look at all the goodness that we experience in life, yes, it's true that certain principles we apply to get the benefits, but ultimately, you are the great giver who leverages these gifts upon us, abundantly give to us. You don't hold back, Lord, because you want this abundant life. You don't desire us to experience life that is lack because you are such a good God who owns the universe. But this is not in the way the charismatic mean it, Father, but it's the way in which you have designed our lives to be so that ultimately we find our satisfaction in you and in no one else. That's why you give us these gifts. But also we understand that we cannot live as if when we get into our graves, that's it, because... The truth is, we will live beyond the grave. And that's why we have to live in the light of judgment. That day we will be in your presence. That day, where Lord, uh, you will reward us uh, because of how we have lived our lives. Or, if we didn't believe, uh, you will distribute these punishments upon those who are unbelievers. Father, we pray that we will live in the light of this and then we will know uh, that life has meaning. And this meaning is essentially you. You are the one who gives life meaning. And any other meaning that is sought in any other place, even in ourselves, is an exercise in futility, is an exercise in grasping after the wind. The only true substance we can ever find in life is when we pursue you. Oh, it is true that the most important thing about any of us is what we think about God. And Father... Help us to think rightly about you so that it can influence every area of our lives. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.